Dave, thank you so much for joining the podcast episode. It was an exciting time because Quarter Cloud and Senson have recently partnered. So for everyone listening, Dave, you created the business. You're a founder. Um, can we go back though and how did you even get to building a business? So were, were you? did you do anything technical at school? Were mm. you passionate about computers? What what drove you to yeah. A, starting a business and in, in vendor world, I guess? Yeah, well, we were just talking about getting old before, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so I was born in, in 81. You right. know, so it was right at the cusp of, you know, what they sort of called digital native. So I sort of snuck in there. I think moreover, I was quite lucky. I was my dad's excuse to sort of get a computer, you know, so Spectrum and then Amiga came along. And so I was the beneficiary, if you like, for his intrigue in, in computers as well. Um, and so I have always had a computer since a very early age. In fact, I remember my mom, bless her, teaching me how to touch type on this little V-Tech thing. When the letters come up, you mm. you then got scored high code. Yeah. Um, and so what's the relevance of that? Well, actually, I grew up in Northern Ireland um, and I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, really at the height of the Troubles in the 80s. You know, um, uh, I, based really on what I saw, I grew a huge passion for wanting to join the military, you know, okay. based on the on the, yep. on the sort of violence that was going on. And like, you know, I think as a, a young teenage boy growing up on a dad of, you know, US centric, like sort of like action movie hero movies yeah. Saturday taking up with the A team and our wolf and yeah. those sort of like types of series it really like developed uh, a passion to go in into the military and you know I wanted to go in when I was 16 but my mum wouldn't sign the paperwork which was uh, probably a smart decision but as soon as I was 18 I joined the Royal Marines Okay. Um, and then a few years after that, um, I went into our, our special forces, you know, um, and and through several twists of fear, uh, I joined a team there where there was a very visionary leader at the time. And he was like, Dave, I want you to begin looking at this um, computer network operations at the time. Each cyber wasn't really widely used. And, and you know, be it serendipity or by design, you know, it was probably like um, a blend of both because I had had this background since being a kid, I just got it, you know, and all of a sudden it awoke in an equal level of passion in terms of technology, hacking, and how you exploit that. And so I began developing capabilities, doing operations, and then I, I, I was asked to actually run the very first time that we'd ever done any of that type of training in, in Special Forces. So I was like, I went very At much... forefront. Yeah, yeah. So I very much went, um, you know, from, from, from having this, like, sort of, like... Um, constant in my childhood of having computers all the time to then being able to use it in a very important real world scenario so i didn't go to university to look to do a computer science degree but actually one thing i benefited from from like learning technology and how to exploit it and the consequences of the widespread mm -hmm. adoption technology you know it was done with like a huge amount of focus because you know we were like looking for hostages abroad. We were looking at hard, you know, and so therefore there was a very compelling, you know, uh, reason why to learn and understand and apply. Which can be missed at university. Even like, I mean, I did I wouldn't know. Well, no, I mean, I did my marketing degree and don't get me wrong, like I wouldn't turn the time back of doing university, mm. but you don't really learn until you're on the job. Like, I, I don't, 
no, we never did ROI. Yeah. Like it was like create an exhibition mm. and you'd spend all the money and do all the design mm. and they you'd put the project in. And I don't remember. I'm I'm sorry to any of my lecturers if it <laughs> is, but I don't remember them ever going. What's the return on the investment on the business? Yeah. What What are you getting out of mm. that? What's How's that driving pipeline? It yeah, was always yeah, the yeah. creative. Yeah. Um. So I I think yeah you're not ever using your resource like your actual practical skills until you leave university yeah. where you just got rocket shipped straight into practical in into important yeah. you know hostage is a very important yeah, situation yeah. where you wouldn't practice that because you care first. right you know like i mean like no one joins a military who doesn't care and feel passionate about this bigger sense of mission i want to do stuff and and you know you know people would come in in the morning and i'm like keyboard imprinted on wow. my desk because i've fallen asleep at my desk you know and and you know i was very grateful to work with equally as passionate and as determined and as hardworking people in that environment. And so that was like, you know, very normal across the board. Um, and so I got immersed in it, you know, like, and I was incredibly, I feel so grateful in terms of the investment and the time and the people that I got to work with. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I guess, you know, they had a geek who didn't mind to be shot at. So I was like prostituted, I quite frankly, <laughs> if I can say that, uh, yeah, sure. uh, to like, you know, different, like, you know, government departments and working with like a, a wider diverse of people and learning from like, you know, the sort of different mission sets that were going on, which gave me like quite a good 360 degree view of the pros and cons of different approaches. And so like, you know, for, you know, like almost 10 years of that bit of my career, I was like, immersed in it and then ironically i got promoted uh, which is where this sounds great normally um but what that m means in the military you know we don't quite have the same or certainly didn't at the time same flexibility with managing people's careers down specific tracks okay um so like i became you know what's known as an officer i guess i got like sort of more of a managerial role which meant hey you've got to go and do these more broader range of jobs and and that's where the conflict of the pa the two passions came in and i was like I just had a sense at the time, you know, that, you know, I, I felt like I was hanging on to this sort of like speeding locomotive that was only going to get faster and faster, you know, and I felt like if I let go now and go and do, you know, the standard officer career path in the military, I guess, um, you're never going to catch this back on because this, this, this like snowball is rolling down this hill is only getting bigger and faster. And you, and, and you, you know, like, and I, I really passionately believe that this was going to, you know, it was going to transform the world, how we live. And, and, and you know, I, obviously that's come, come to pass, definitely. I think we'd all agree. And so I left, you know, and very challenging time yeah. in my life, right? You know, like ever since I was like a 13-year-old boy, this is all I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I, I went through a couple of really hard years, I think. and Because um, I don't think people talk about the military because it's, it's more, isn't it, than just the job. There's like the culture and the people. And because my, my uncle, he went in and out a few times mm. um, and he really struggled yeah. to come out to, to normal because there's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot yeah. of... Yeah, collaboration and team morale. I guess it's yeah, it's, and it's a sense of mission. Like, okay. you, you know what I mean? That's the that's one of the things that that leaves a bit of a hole that you can probably neither describe at the time or even recognize in yourself at the time that you're going through a bit of a challenging um, period. But of course, your mates do, right? You know what I mean? And so then, you know, of course, they they rally around and and, and help and support and sort of get you back up on your on your feet again. Um, and so. 
during that time, I began teaching, though, cyber okay. operations, law enforcement. I began doing incident response. So mm-hmm. I, I was able to then, like, you know, continue on uh, uh, with what I was, like, extremely passionate about. Um, and now I begin to learn about the commercial world, you know. So, um, uh, and, you know, I was very naive, you know. I remember, like, going into a meeting. In fact, um, it was my old boss in the military who had, subsequently left and had taken a position in a large oil and gas firm. He's like, hey, you know, Dave, could you come up and speak to my head of IT about um, about cybersecurity, yeah. you know? And uh, and I remember, like, the very first meeting, and he was, um, I sort of, like, put my suit on. I'd got on the train, come up to London. I was like, ooh, you know, this I was cool. like, this, this is cool. <laughs> um, and the very first question he asked me was, you know, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I was like, Oh my god! Like it, it, you know, he actually still takes the piss out of me to this day about oh this meeting. It was like, it was like my tie was like tightening up around my throat, and I was like, because it was like actually, I don't know what to say. You know what I mean? And uh, it was like, and I was like, oh my god, this is going to be harder than I think it's going to be. And I went, I went from that meeting to have a coffee with a with a friend, Nick, um, who had recently left government. I had worked with him in there and had uh, founded uh, uh, Trace at the time, you know. Oh, okay. And he was, um, he was like, Dave, you do not have a clue about the commercial world. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, why don't you come in here with me and sort of, uh, sort of like, you know, uh, you know, I'm setting up the sales and the go-to-market team here. We can sort of work on this together. And so, um, whilst doing all of like the incident response and the teaching, I went in uh, with Nick very early on in, in Doctress and and very grateful actually for that experience because there's not many places, or certainly there wasn't at the time, and I sort of fell into it just by association right with yeah, and, um, and he took a bet, right? You know, I mean, like if you were setting up a SEALs team, you would not. <laughs> you know, the one person you would not have hired at that point would have been me, but um, um, and uh very very grateful for the experience because certainly at that time there just was not a you know or very few fast growing uk startups and they grew grew. yeah and had a great marketing you know you know like very experienced investors who had done this before Mm -hmm. you know and so um and so that was like you know the one thing that you get good at in the military is learning because you're they're always sending you in courses so you actually if there's one muscle that you develop it's 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 the ability to learn and learn fast and then apply it quickly you know yeah. um, to like a high degree of of effectiveness and so you know i was just like very very lucky to learn from very experienced people and um and i think that early stage go-to-market development of any technology company is unique in the sense that you can't just apply a playbook you've used before or someone else's playbook, you've got to figure it out, you know? And, you know, that builds a sort of capability in the people who can go through that that I think is um, uh, is a rare skill set today in technology and definitely, you know, um, passionately. The UK can, can, can sort of, like, like develop that uh, more and more and more and get that flywheel going. I think that's, you know, you can see the difference between that was like 2015 and, and now already in, in the UK mm-hmm. startup ecosystem. But, but yeah, so I, I had that experience um, there, which I was very grateful with. But, I, you know, I'd always been nurturing some of, like, the, the concepts and capabilities I've been working on in government. And what then became apparent from the teaching of how you look at, like, a... a 
a network from an offensive problem and then also doing the incident response and helping, you know, everything from sovereign wealth funds out when they got hacked to like individuals, etc. And I began to connect the two and then the idea for sense on it begins to, to form and and somewhat like counterintuitively to what was going on in the industry. I had a sense of perspective, you know, and I, and I think this is going to be a long-term high-risk strategy, but I think this is something that we really, yeah, to build, you know. So this is going to be a big bet because we're going to take a first principles approach to really trying to solve some of these big trends that we see emerging in the industry today. And there was really four that stood out for me. The first one was, hey, things are getting really complex not just complicated but complex which is a whole different level you know and you can really track this from the advent of the public cloud companies in the sort of mid uh, 2000s and around that time you know we still had this idea you know we're sat in quarter cloud's amazing castle mm-hmm. right you know and so so we had an idea at that time of this perimeter security model this like yep. castle and moat put everything in the middle you're fine you know mm-hmm. um that was already breaking down yep. um and actually a far more suitable mental model for today is you know actually what you have is a sort of archipelago of data islands each with its own attack service and its own unique problems and data sets that you've got to almost apply a, an architecture to and so that, you know, was going to be incredibly challenging. The second key uh, trend I thought that was going to be incredibly challenging was the advancement of the threat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having seen in government the, the likes of the Snowden leaks and, you know, were, I think during that period, people's sort of um, field of vision went from this is what's in the art of the possible to oh, wow, this is yeah. what's in the other possible, you know? And you can take like a, you know, like a cyberpunk type view of it saying, oh, information like wants to be free. And, you know, but the point of the, the like, the point that I took away from all of that was be that by advanced threats being discovered, reverse en- engineered and better understood, you were going to get this like, advanced capability that would gradually trickle down to less advanced uh, actors who could then take advantage of the research, the development, the innovation and the money who'd gone in that had gone in to develop yeah. that, yeah. be it tradecraft or technical exploitations, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that was the, the second thing, the advancement of the threat. Like, you know, they because when I learned hacking, Kelly, it, you would go and you would buy hardware, then yeah. you would install a range of operating system and then you install some vulnerable applications so it was not a, an insignificant task to go and like you know teach yourself how to hack and you'd hang out in some pretty dodgy forums quite frankly you know <laughs> and uh, the hoodie thing was a thing yeah it was a thing yeah <laughs> and like yeah you know you, yeah so the now you open up a tab in a browser and you've got a professional training dojo that you can do you know and so the accessibility of the learning is so much easier and and why does that matter well it matters as if you are in an economic situation whereby you need to put food in the table in your family and you've got the technical nice to be able to do so well there's a very low barrier to entry to learn how to hack and then you're up and running and you've got at least and there's also like we were talking about this yesterday as if you could get if you can get hold of credentials in the dark web there's now managed services that will just go oh take 10% of it <clears throat> yeah. and go do the hack for you and it's like what like that 
it's just an, like madness, really. Yeah. And so you can't think of the advancement of the threat exactly just in terms of technical development. You've got to think about it like organizational yeah, development. Yeah, they've got HR departments. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in fact, if you were an investor and a business came along to you and said, oh, I'm making like 100 million a quarter, like, you know, you, you'd probably want to invest in a business, exactly. you know? Um, so, so there's two things that falls out from that. So they're going to improve the organizational design to be more efficient and effective. But also, as you would do if you were like a technology company, um, you would reinvest some of that money in research and development. And that's exactly what we're seeing now, mm -hmm. you know. And so, so the advancement of the threat, again, is something that we're not going to be able to control. And then... Um, something that we're very passionate about a sense on is, is data, the explosion of DNA. And if you look at the data curve from even going back from even 2010 to where we are now, it's exponential. And so estimated to be around about, you know, 180, 185 zettabytes of data being produced, adopted and consumed in the world by 2025. Now, interestingly, 50% of that's going to be in the cloud. So, Dave, what does that mean? Well, let me paint a mental picture. Yeah. So if one byte of data, it bits, was a single grain of rice, you could fill the whole Pacific Ocean with rice with just one zettabyte. You know, so just think of that in terms of like a, a mental model. And, and the, so what the implication is, of course, if I'm an attacker and I'm after your data, well, there's just so much more of it around, first and foremost, yeah. right? But if I'm after specific data, there's a hell of a lot more for me to hide in, right? To get it out in a covert manner. And so like... That data problem is challenging and it's an opportunity for the attackers, but it's a huge challenge from when we begin to think about how do we design our security architectures of the future, you know. Um, having, <laughs> just thinking about the rice, <laughs> having visibility of it. Yeah. Like, I like mean, yeah. If yeah. you're, if, you know, if your job is the to secure that. Yeah. And that amount of data is being produced or being put in the cloud, or and even like, we talk about cloud, but cloud is still quite new for some. Some people are still moving, yeah. are still doing the architecture of that. So, for you, how does someone even begin to have visibility or know they've got visibility, or are there some rooms right now that the light need might need switching on that they don't even know it needs switching on? Or, what what are you? with sense on what were you trying to mm. so you saw the three trends mm. you knew what was on the market i mean you were of dark trace so yeah, you could see what yeah, was going on yeah. so what were you like oh this is what they're missing yeah and this is what we're gonna have to do yeah well so it all starts with the data you know okay. and it starts with how we think about traditional architecture designs you know which at the time and this was more how the cybersecurity industry had evolved was because you know there's a, a saying security is hard for a reason. And so from a technology provider point of view to begin to solve the problem, the best way to tackle it was to break it down into little components and little chunks, yeah. one piece at a time, you know. Yeah. Let's try and build a decent antivirus so that, you know, yeah. People can't use commodity malware at the same point. Let's try and monitor our networks. And, you know, there's an evolution of a range of great open source projects and, you know, like network security pro uh, products that came on the market. And then, of course, uh, you know, mobile device products and cloud And hence the proliferation begins to become a bit of a problem. And so what that means is when you've got 
lots of things trying to do little bits and pieces of the puzzle, um, it causes a number of different problems for people trying to defend themselves. And like I said, I want to reiterate the point, this was out of necessity, you know what I mean? Like we didn't do this as an industry on purpose is because we're trying to solve a really, you know, cybersecurity, what I love about it is it's, it's adversarial, you know what I mean? So it's not like you, you can just build something and it's a static thing and you've Done. solved that technology problem. You've got to constantly iterate on it. So yeah. that's why you've got to break it down into these small component parts. Um, but like that causes technical challenges from like an, uh, a security engineer. So if you're going to engineer an efficient and effective system to protect your in- enterprise, in an ideal world, that's not the approach that you would take, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what those those sort of early sort of like like technology companies like you know your EDR and your NDR they could exploit though was the power of the cloud to allow them to give more computing power. So when I set up Sense, I was like, well, hey, we're going to make a big bet here. You know, we're going to like try and tackle these emerging trends, and what we're going to try to do is, you know, we're not going to we're going to th- forget about everything we know about cybersecurity, and we're going to think, hey. If we were to design something from scratch that, you know, could begin to solve this little bits and pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, if it could allow us to, like, you know, write analytics easier. Because, of course, when you've got little bits and pieces of everything, they've all got their own bespoke analytics. They've all got their own language, their own data model, their own, you know. Um, And and the problem was best summed up to me at a time when i was doing my my sort of research by the head of a sock of a very very large probably one of the largest uh, insurers in the world and he sat me down and he said davis like this it's like doing the world's most difficult jigsaw puzzle but there's no picture in the box mm-hmm. and there's loads of pieces missing mm-hmm. you know and i was like okay so then so then it begs the question what do you begin to do and you've got to start with the data you know and so really Sensor is known for really two key technical innovations, Kelly. The first one is what we call the universal sensor. And this is what allows us to get, in the words of one of our customers, a, a global manufacturing company, beautiful data, you know. And, and, and what it allows us to do is, is we combine identity information, endpoint information, and full deep packet inspection information on the endpoint that it deploys to itself. So it's a bit of software, deploys to containers, infrastructure in the cloud, Windows, MacBooks, Linux machines, servers, it doesn't really matter, very lightweight. And what it does then, it creates this sort of defense and intelligence mesh network. And so with sort of normal sort of monitoring, I guess you're getting the bit of the iceberg that's above the surface of the water, you right. know, and of course the, the vast majority of the density is below, you know, yeah. and so you're then getting this at a very low level and so you're seeing and you've got access all of a sudden to the whole iceberg, you know. Okay. Um, so that's the first advantage, very much more complete data, you right. know. The second advantage is that it's already unified for you, you know. So like traditional architectures, they try to collect data from, all of the different pieces yeah. of the jigsaw puzzle and the back end, normally in what's known as a SIEM, a security mm-hmm. information event management uh, platform. And then the manual work begins in terms of trying to connect what this one product calls an IP address to what this other one calls an IP address and then normalize and uh, yeah. et cetera from that point. And it's timely. 
it's challenging because you're at the whim of if this person, if this, this sorry, if this product over here like just changes its data model slightly, yeah, then yeah. It, it has a downstream effect, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then, of course, you've got to write analytics over this data, you know. So that's the next. So, so now you've gone to the infrastructure team. They've got you all of the logs to cover up the blind spots between your single point tools, and then you're like, okay, now let's begin the challenge of running analytics over the data. And there's always a tension when it comes to writing analytics because, um, and it's a, a tension versus speed versus quality, you know. Yeah. So do you get like lots of coverage very quickly, but if you do, the chances are they're not going to be very high quality right. alerts. And what that means then, your security operations team are not going to be happy with you. And it's just notification fatigue, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Anything decent. Yeah. And that you know, going back to the time when I was doing incident response was like something that I really identified as a root cause uh, problem because inevitably I'd go in to help out these businesses, but the alerts would already be in the scene, you know. But right. the fact was it was the the 50th, 100,000th time a day they'd seen those alerts. And, you know, we've got amazing talent, amazing people in the, in the industry, but it doesn't matter how diligent you are, like, you know, you will get fatigued, just like, you know, it's the same thing, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. And, of course, you're just seeing one piece of puzzle without any context, yeah. you know. And we'll talk about that, I think. Like, in, in, well, let's come back around to, like, the context and the alert fatigue and the problem. But that, but that's a real pain in the industry, you know, is in this, like, constant bombardment of alerts because immediately, you know, you may have spent tens of thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds on this technology, but within, you know, the the drop-off curve of trust in that technology Mm -hmm. is steep if it is not tuned operating correctly, you know. And so then how do you begin to solve that problem? So so the first problem was let's sort out the data. You know, when I, I came to find sense on, I think like that's gonna make it, you know, if you t- if you really believe in taking a first principles approach, you gotta start with the data. And then the second thing is how do you move from security teams being reactive to every notification? And I see this, you know, I mm-hmm. go onto a call with a security team and they're looking, you know, they're looking at the screen constantly as things come in, and you know, they, they can't focus. You yeah. know, so how do you? It's like emails, though, isn't it? It's like emails, exactly. Too like many emails. emails. Yeah. Too many emails. Like, I mean, I don't know how you guys operate, but we have multiple different platforms yeah. we communicate on. Yeah. It's like, what do I tackle first? Emails, um, Teams. We have a chat. We have, you know also like people putting things on your desk like what's yeah, what's yeah, the priority is exactly. it the emails is it the and, and that is that's that is even the exclamation mark thing by the way guys doesn't work <laughs> on me anymore because <laughs> everyone does that <laughs> so all i have is exclamation mark emails with all the other emails so yeah, yeah i can i can't even imagine from a yeah scene perspective i get bombarded uh, and the emails. numbers get a bit mental here right yeah. you know, i've gone into some socks where they're like 25 million alerts a month you know and and like you know I said, we're a very data-driven organization, and you sort of say, okay, well, there was a, a a bit of research back actually 2019, where this sort of said, quite unhelpfully, that the average time to investigate a single alert ranges from between 10 minutes to 50, five zero minutes. But if you even took the minimum amount, you know, that would be, and you then took the time, that mm-hmm. analysts work, that would be like a $1.6 billion annual salary bill for analysts to get through all of those alerts if they worked, you know, if they never took a break, never got ill, etc. And so it becomes almost quite comical at the very large scale. It's just like, the, yeah, yeah, it's nothing. But, it's, it? but, it, but, but like, 
it's almost this is this is the point right at the very large scale it's the most important so like fortune 250 companies have on average a 50 percent um chance of having uh, a data breach that will cause a material impact every single year mm-hmm. and then interestingly there's another 33 percent chance on top of that that it will happen more than once so it's almost these bigger enterprises need to help the most but actually because of this, like I say, no one's fault. It's how the industry had to evolve. Um, uh, it's, it's it's an impossible much. problem. Yeah. yeah. And so um, very early on, in fact, the very first thing uh, that we sort of invented was this concept of AI triangulation. And essentially what that does, as opposed to like telling you about every single thing that comes across your estate, what it does, it just begins to build up a potential attack path, you know? So Mm -hmm. it basically continually assesses risk and trust for every identity endpoint, every network interaction. And it's building this attack path for you on your behalf underneath the hood. Now you can go and you can look at all the attack paths as they build up. But what it means is it is then has, it has a much wider field of your data from the universal sensor in which to like hold the alerts from your environment against a background to hold them against so it knows what happened before what happened after you know so it's it's sort of doing that analysis on your behalf and you know the net result of it is you know we've got like FTSE 100 companies who are getting 30 alerts a month you know going from like tens of thousands to like so they can check all the stuff if they want to yeah yeah. But what you're saying is that you're kind of like traffic lighting them. So you're like going, right, well, this is this is actually not that bad. It's like an orange, green. This is like an amber. And then, oh, this is a red. And uh, you exactly. need to know about that one. Yeah, because right. what you very quickly realize um, is... Um, it's like having an EA for your emails. <laughs> it's like having an EA for your emails. <laughs> uh, well, we actually say, hey, we enable you to get inbox zero for cybersecurity. You know, like just yeah, as like, yeah, you know, yeah. something to connect on that, that particular pain point. But the... Um, uh, Sorry, I distracted you. Yeah, I was going to say something, and I bet you it was really profound, but uh, I completely forgot. I said said about the traffic light system and then notifications and pinging. Yeah. And then you get the ones that you actually need. I mean, like, that's exactly what we do, right? You know, Um, but it does, it stops you from being like, you know, reactive to moving to be like a much more proactive um, sort of, sort of view. And, and the reason why it's open and transparent for you to look at is because of this concept of trusting the machine because it's a bit of a weird situation because so, yeah because i imagine if you've been getting hundreds and hundreds of them a day yeah. they plug in your product and like maybe yeah. one pops in they're like oh yeah they're, they're missing something yeah so there's a, so there's like a bit of rehab that people yeah. have got to go you've got to like you know you've got to slowly eat them off the drug of you know like the sort of like dopamine hit when they get it you get a notification you know so you know it, and you know like as in you know we didn't have this view, so we call it the experience view in the product, where you could see everything at the start. And so, okay. like right back in the early days, they'd be like, uh, "Dave, it, it's like not working." I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it is working. Yeah. And so, so then we we opened this up, and you could like expose this whole back end. So really, open transparency, so they could trust it. Um, but it is a it is a noticeable noticeable switch, you know, mm-hmm. from going and having like hundreds, if not thousands, to deal with to having like one case per day and and so there is this really like um uh, sort of like uh, like i say what can only be described so rehabilitation yeah. process of, hey no you you've got your time back what do you then do with your time how can you proactively push your security program forward you mm-hmm. know and and of course we always insist on testing when people try our software for the first time so then they know actually yeah, if anything right. happens it's going to pick it up you know um uh but yeah yeah no you uh, 
those are the two key things, you know. So the universal sensor sorts your data out. The AI triangulation basically, what we say is it integrates with, it restores trust in your existing architecture and then obviously allows you to maximize the ROI, you know, mm. because then your team aren't running around dealing with this very high level of false positives. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about talent at the minute and how we can encourage people to get into the industry, but... You know, there's nothing that's going to put people off joining in like junior sock roles in the industry is if we are not leveraging technology to its best ability to like make sure that they have got time to learn and develop, mm. right? Because it's the beginning of their careers, right? If they are, you know, being thrashed from the minute they walk in and start their shift to the minute they finish, that's unsustainable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it. We did... um on the podcast we did a bit on um, um, getting people into industry but one of the biggest problems is that we've got the high, one of the highest industries for burnout Yeah. so it's not only trying to get people to join a SOC team mm. but then probably in two, three years they're out the door yeah. anyway because yeah. they're burnt out so it's like a horrible vicious circle yeah. So and it's happening at both ends now as well I was actually asked to host the um, it's called the National Technology Security Coalition which is um, like a US based group of CISOs although they do allow CISOs um, uh, from across uh, different uh, nations to join and their job is to lobby Capitol Hill, you know, on the big issues in the cybersecurity community. Um, and, you know, chatting through with some of the, the key uh, people there, you know, they're saying the biggest thing they're lobbying at, at the minute is like workforce issues because mm-hmm. of the talent shortage. And it's, you know, definitely a challenge of getting people in. But of course, you've got all this regulatory pressure coming down on people, right? right? You know, and you've got, you know, albeit big people you know like um maybe not behaving as they should have done in high pressure situations and so what you then are seeing is you know CISOs have are in this like awkward position because they are very much on the hook for the regulatory and compliance consequences but yet they may not have uh whilst they've got a C sweet title you know they may not have that position in the company whereby they're protected for example by the insurance protections of other directors in the company you know um, and so if people begin getting prosecuted in the industry you're going to then begin to get you know it's already a very high, highly stressful mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. right you know um, uh, especially for the leaders so you're going to get this like loss of a lot of experience potentially and a lot of capability uh, because at he the was that on their head yeah interestingly though with your military background do you think there's a lot of stuff that we could take from military in the sense that you guys would have done practice hostage you would have done you know you don't just go to war <laughs> like not practice like yeah. there is a lot of you know and you do a lot about the mental stuff and the rehabilitation mm. and what happens do you think that's because it's not a tangible thing that we don't put the same support mechanisms into the IT teams of like what happens when a ransomware happens and the impact on that because like you said people get penalized for the decisions they've made but it's a flight or flight response, isn't it? Most mm-hmm. people don't yeah. know how they're going to respond 100%. until they are in it. Yeah, yeah. So to then get kind of get pulled apart for that is quite, I yeah. don't know. Do you think there's things in the industry that we can learn on the human factor of preparation for it? Yeah, undoubtedly, you know, and um, the one thing the military is great at because of the complexity of the operations are sometimes asked to, um, called upon to call uh, to, to conduct is, we will do very thorough planning, very thorough rehearsals. You know, we will walk through step by step. We're going to clear this room. We're going to do this. 
helicopter is going to land over there, right? And we'll all pretend we get on the helicopter, right? right yeah. We're going to walk over here. We're going to do this, you know? And, you know, that time spent rehearsing and, and mentally visualizing, okay, when this happens, we're going to do this. Okay, we now get contacted from the left. You know, we're getting fired upon from that. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. We're immediately going to do this. And, you know, that rehearsal of what happens under fire allows people to perform well under fire, you know? And I think that's the point. Like, do not wait until, you know, you get a, a notice pop up on your desktop or your laptop saying, you know, you need to pay this much Bitcoin. It's, you know, you want to be rehearsing and thinking about that. You want to build that muscle memory as an executive team beforehand. Yeah. Do your backups work? Do your, like, how do you communicate when, you know, do you tell customers, teams do, you, do, you go, yeah. do you respond yeah. to press? Do yeah. you not respond to yeah. press? Yeah. Do you, like, yeah, I think that's a big thing about it as well. You, you want these people to take these roles, but... I don't know. I, from what I've learned from a lot of people that I've spoken to, or even people that have gone through an attack and survived it, mm-hmm. um, and my earliest was WannaCry. I just started after all of that, and we were started in the NHS, and like, assumptions made maybe by me that they knew what to do, yeah. but it was a lot of post-it notes yeah. and paper running around, and I was like, oh, yeah. and they were like, well, we weren't ready for it. We didn't. Yeah. No one was prepared for it. No yeah. one had gone through it. No one had gone through it with the nurses or not what to do or not to log on to this. It yeah. was just... Yeah, and I, I, survival mode. Yeah, I remember doing an, an incident response workshop with a uh, with the CISO of Maersk, who was there at the time, and right. you know, and he, he gave us like wonderful story about how it all unfolded, and and of course, you know, um, you're then going onto WhatsApp to manage your business. You're going back to pen and paper. You yeah. know what I mean to manage your business, and you know, are you really prepared for that? What contingencies have you got in place? What systems have you got in place? Otherwise, you know, to to really help you out, and um, and so yeah, so like you know. Time spent in preparation is not going to be wasted. Getting your executive team to rehearse and mentally walk through uh, a scenario. Okay, now this has happened. What are we going to do here? You know, our our biggest customer has rang us up, you know, going, you know, um, what's going on? I hear, because of course, um, what these actors will do and what they're becoming very expert at now is beginning to apply the pressure in a, in a, in a really... Um, precise way to maximize the return on on any hack and what i mean is that is finding your most sensitive data it means like double extortion of you know hey yeah we got your data but hey we know you really care about our your customers Mm -hmm. data that we've grabbed and now if you don't pay up we're going to go and we're going to begin you you touched on um some of like the compliance regulations legislations those sort of pressures that are coming on with a product like Sensor, how does that support some of that legislation that's either coming or i mean there's always new ones i feel yeah, like we talk yeah. about nist 2 mitre mm, then there's dora coming yeah. so how does products and vendors support cso's and tech teams to comply to those yeah so so it's wide and it's very you know we've got global customers right you know so it's um it really depends uh, in terms of what region that you're in but you know the ability and flexibility to have your data wherever you want it Mm -hmm. is something that's like very important that 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 privilege of choice in that regard is 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 a mandatory requirement you can't just say hey yeah this is all going to go back to our cloud and you know you got to like it absolutely not you've got to give that uh, customer, especially in regulated industries, that that privilege of the choice of where the data is stored and processed, and 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 then of course you know whilst there is a proliferation of these standards, they do tend to take inspiration at least from like you know the last best practice yeah. you know, and so mm. um, of course the, there's broad applicability of 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 you know 
essentially what is a continuous logging and monitoring platform um, uh, uh, for any of these standards is pretty much a mandatory requirement in all of them. And of course, if you need it then as a as a service and you need twenty four seven sort of eyes on, you know, our partnership obviously is something that can facilitate that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone's listening to this and they're tackling visibility or they're completely relating to the notification fatigue or they're like, oh my God, I have no idea where to start or I've got too much data, what would you would say are some just best practice things that you would recommend someone does? Like, It's a big project, isn't it? It's a big piece. So what would Huge. you say is like a start here, work your way up? What would you say as an expert to do? Yeah, so there's really three core components that you've got to consider. Um, and the first one is the breadth and the depth of the data that you're going to to capture, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's important because we have had many, many companies come to us and go, Dave, hey, I'm 30% into my same project. And I've had the CFO on the phone saying, whoa, 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 what's going on with these bills? You know? Mm. And so you've got to have predictability in your future cost model. And that future cost model has got to be sustainable because otherwise you would have gone to all this time and effort of like, you know, orienting the team around delivering on this objective only to be stopped, you know, and it is 30 to 50% of the way through Mm. because of the unpredictable nature of the cost. We solve that. We give you predictability in the cost, you know? And the second thing then is, great, we've got the data, but actually, what does that mean in terms of risk, right? What's the yeah. breadth and depth of coverage of using common models like MITRE attack mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, the SIS top 18, I think it is now, mm-hmm. as opposed to top 20 mm-hmm. or any, whatever, you know, NIST, whatever it is that you want to use. Yeah. But like, you know, fundamentally you've got to satisfy yourself and be able to report to the board, hey, we are now able to protect ourselves against these types of techniques or threats or, you know, we've moved the capability on in terms of detection uh, uh, demonstrably. And you should be able to quantify that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, again, that's something being very data-driven that we can help you with. And then it's third. How do we operationalize this? Because it's great gathering loads of data, and then having a very good broad and deep coverage of analytics and being able to detect things, but that will all be futile if there's now 10 million alerts in the sock inbox and they don't know which one is real because that's right. almost just as bad as having no visibility whatsoever yeah. because they're going to miss that needle in the haystack. Exactly. Yeah. Really, yeah. exactly what I was thinking in my head. <laughs> I'm, just envis- I'm just lots of rice in my head and trying to find the right, the right one. Okay, so those are your best practices. What do you think is the future of this sector? Like, what do you see trends? What do you think the Sentinel is going to have to tackle? Because yeah. like you said, this is not a topic that you, you must know, like the technology you've created is going to have to evolve yeah. with the attack. Yeah. So what do you see is coming your way as a wave? So we've always had this counterintuitive approach, right? You know, where we talked about these, these sort of compelling strategic trends that are not going to change. You know, mm-hmm. it's, always, it's going to be more complex the threat is always going to evolve in advance and hey, the data is going to be a really big problem. We've talked about the talent shortage as well. Yeah. Now, the vision of Sensorn is to make the internet a safe place so everyone can prosper. The emphasis is on everyone there, right? Because if you think about it today, Kelly, you know, you've got to go... You've got to go and buy firewalls, web proxies. You've got to go and like, you know, hire skilled people that knows how to set all this infrastructure up. Then you've got to go and get endpoint tools and network tools, blah, 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 and collect all the logs. Well, we just talked about them. 
And so, you know, so then our our mission then is how do you make how do you make this simpler, smarter, and secure? Because never really in the in the history of time has the answer to an exponential because this is exploding the challenge in all directions. You know. Mm-hmm. Has it been a more complex solution? Actually, what you need to do is, we, what the industry needs, it needs a paradigm shift. It needs like a, a game sort of like, like like a changing sort of shift. We can't keep doing the same thing that we've been doing, having all of these little tiny bits of the jigsaw puzzle. And so that's what we're attempting to do. So we're trying to go, hey, can you take a first principles approach to actually make the solution simpler, mm-hmm. not worse? And, 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 and that's really like core to everything that we do, right? You know, it's like, hey, how can we make this easier to deploy? How can we make this like simpler to manage? You know, and so, um, and 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 when we talk about building future-proof solutions, the, a lot of the design thing that we do around it is is, you know, well, yeah, this would be great and sexy and cool, but is it simple? Does it does it make our? It does it make the head of IT in a two hundred and fifty person firm's job easy? Easier. Yeah. And does it make that CISO on the other end of the spectrum who's got this like very complex beast to solve with like the twenty-five million dollars coming out? Does it solve their problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And every time we go through that exercise, we go back to the drawing board and go, no, we've got to make it simpler. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so so it is somewhat counterintuitive, but of course we're always evolving. But actually often what we're doing is like, okay, we built it this way this time. Could we then re-engineer to make this simpler easier because you're making it simpler and easier and we're all used to it being complicated and needing loads of stuff and we should have loads of notifications and we should Mm. be really stressed (laughs) do you like what you're trying to do in your mission is amazing but do you think sometimes some people sit there have you found some people like oh this is too easy that that can't be right (laughs) what else have i got to plug into this all the time Right, all the you time. might have the opposite. Like, I know what you're trying to do, but yeah. just because I know what everyone's like around, yeah. I know what they're like around here. Yeah. Are they not going to like? That's love, Dave. But I know I'm gonna have to plug this. Yeah, in. I yeah, mean, yeah. That sounds too. Well, easy. you know, we're here to integrate with everything that right. you've got. That's the key thing, right? You know, because we want to make that simpler as well, right? As okay. in, we want to be able to say, hey, you've got like a noisy tool over here, but like, hey, you know, it fulfills a use case for you because the things about enterprise enterprises is they've often got bespoke use cases and yeah, actually a yeah. lot of the times this is a python script they wrote like you know that then i puts alerts you know and so um and so whereas like the first like four years of building like the product was focusing on let's get it right in our product like as in the ai triangulation to like really build these attack paths and reduce this noise and surface just the most important threats that is not applicable across your existing stack you know so the air triangulation is not something that is caged to the confines of the sense on product it's something that you can plug in the rest of your stack and it can restore trust in all of the other products that you've bought as well you know and so like i think that's like 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 super important you know mm-hmm. you've got to meet customers where they where their problems is and where they want to be met right you know and yeah. so like and so like that's something that we're very, very um, like privileged to be able to do, and then going back to your point about skepticism, and and the only way around that is testing. You know, so we've yeah. done a lot of independent testing, where you know AAA rating, and you know, you know, so like one component of the universal sensor is is equitable to like traditional enterprise EDR. You know, so again, we just had a recent AAA rating in the enterprise EDR along with the leading ETRs. Likewise, you know, on on the EPP component of the universal sensor again, A plus. So you know you 
by the very nature of our industry, you know, you've got to provide the customer with these proof points, especially when you're trying to do something something new and different and innovative. You know, I think it's 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 incredibly important because I, I say it's almost table stakes, right? You know, um, yeah. Does sense on play particularly nice in any particular industry, or are you saying this is for anyone? And where are you seeing your successes predominantly? Or is there any industry, any person? We have got like a very wide, diverse range right. of industries. There is a concentration, as you probably would expect, in um, critical national infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So there's like really important places to protect. Um, and actually, we are a national security strategic investment fund company. So the UK government invested in Sensor shortly after the, the solar winds hack, you know, because of this ability to remove those blind spots by combining this identity endpoint and network information. So critical national national infrastructure um, and then of course the highly regulated industries so our largest proportion of customers are in financial services yeah. um, uh, but then you know we've got some great brands in retail large global manufacturing brands so like a People who are widely distributed and are large have a higher propensity to buy Sanson because the challenge of those um, like you know, geographically distributed federated decision-making models where you know you have an infrastructure team in South America and Asia and North mm-hmm. America and that's a challenge to you know if it's hard to get the data from like you know like three locations around the UK it's it, yeah, exactly it's even more so yeah. those role like all of those. Um, signals or uh, you know relate to people who have got a very uh, uh, who've got challenges that Samsung can really solve so Dave just to close there's some um, people like me that aren't very technical and you used an example of AI triangulation mm-hmm. it would be something that people would say well marketing's made that up mm-hmm. what would that what does that actually mean yeah. In real terms, what does AI triangle? I mean, right now I've got AI in the middle and a triangle around it, but in my head. But could yeah. you explain what that actually means in your world? And what what is that doing? Yeah. So, so like a simple analogy would be, you know, the global positioning system. Right. You get a lock on one satellite, then it's not going to be um, that accurate. But right. you then begin to triangulate that with multiple um, uh, satellites, then it becomes more and more accurate, and that's essentially what it's doing underneath the hood. And I, I sometimes like tell a story when it comes to this, and I, I reflect on a story um, that actually happened in September 1983, and um, there was a, an incident in the Russian Nuclear Operational Command, where 2 a.m. in the morning, Kelly, all of a sudden, alarms begin going off. Screens begin flashing red. And at that time, the protocol, because it was at the height of the Cold War, was you must immediately notify your superiors so a counter-strike can be launched back towards the U.S. Because what this was signaling was, oh, my God, the U.S. have launched nuclear missiles at Russia, you know. And, um, And the colonel in charge of it, recounts this story where he's like frozen frozen in his chair. It's like, you train for this, but this looks legit, yeah. you know? And he describes how it was a bit of an ease as he got off from his chair. He sort of walked over and picked up the phone like he had done almost like without thinking and training. It's ringing. It gets answered to the other, other end. And he's like, uh, the alarms have just gone off, but it's like a false alarm. I don't want you to worry about it. And he puts down the phone and he's like, oh my God, what has just happened, you know? Oh, well, he said that just like... Yeah, he was like a false alarm. 
He didn't know that for sure. He did not know for sure. Oh. Because and the consequence oh of that, God. the consequence of that would be an immediate counter-strike would have been launched back towards the US. Of you course. Know? Now, what subsequently came out was it was actually the reflection on some high-altitude clouds over North Dakota that had caused this false alarm. Now, the point being, ever since that day, when there is a potential detection from that system, and I think the whole world will take some reassurance from this, it must be automatically triangulated from other satellites, you know? So that's what it's Can't doing for you. One point of view. That's what it's, that is what AI is I wonder what made him think this is a false alarm. He said it was just his, like... Gut. And it was... It was his gut, but the the knowledge of the consequences of him doing the alternative, which was like uh, they're attacking us, that like made him hedge his bets, you know. And so that's how why lucky I, we were. It was him, yeah. And, that and, day, right, a guy named Colonel Petrov. Fascinating story. You should definitely read yeah. it. But that's the concept, right? You know, as in like you were being responsive to all of these potential threats in your environment. One, not everyone is getting hacked. 10,000 times a day, every day. So you that's the first thing, right? <laughs> just, just an FYI. <laughs> just we're as not, an FYI. We're not all that interesting. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's a horrible place to be in, you know? And so really what it is, AI Triangulation is doing, is it's bringing surety. It's bringing that inbox here. It's bringing that time to breathe and reflect and to, like, be told only when you need to act about a security threat in your environment yeah. as opposed to being reactive all the time. So hopefully that provides oh you with Oh my goodness, can you imagine you just trigger happy and was like, yeah, uh, go! Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating story, right? You know, That's a lot of power for one person. Yeah, yeah. And like, but yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So Dave, thank you so much for your time. We have a closing tradition on the podcast mm. where we ask our guests why we would like someone that's listening or thinking about joining the cybersecurity industry, as we all know. We have an issue of talent joining Mm -hmm, it, so why mm -hmm. would you encourage someone to join? So at the beginning, I talked about when you leave the military, you, you the big gaping hole that's hard to describe is your loss of a sense of mission, you know. Yeah. And what I can say is really, you know, since finding sense on, I've, I've got that back. The cybersecurity industry, you are doing good. You are helping people. It's adversarial, you know. And so, like, you're, you're constantly um, at the heart of emerging technology. You're constantly at the heart of sometimes geopolitics, you know, uh, in terms of that can turn the tide on, like, uh, a swath of global uh, attacks. And so it's a great industry to be in, you know, if you're passionate about helping, if you're passionate about technology. And so, so yeah, obviously, I would encourage anyone to join the industry. Thank you. Thanks, Dave, for coming. I hope we'll have you on the podcast again soon. Love to. Thanks.